and uh, the importance of trusting Christ as your Savior in order to be saved. We have spent a few weeks of time on the book of Galatians in Sunday school and dealing with the idea that we're no longer under the law, we're under grace, and I'm thankful for that. We do not get justified, we don't get saved by keeping the law. Uh, doesn't mean that the law is a bad thing or a wicked thing or an evil thing. It certainly is helpful to us. But it's not what saves us. Our salvation is by faith alone. And I want to spend a little bit of time this morning on dealing with some things that come from our salvation and the assurance that we have to be eternally saved. Uh, I know a lot of times I've talked with folks and uh, people that have been raised in good churches and have even heard the message of salvation clear from Scripture. They may have even had a moment or time in their life. I was talking to a fellow just a couple of weeks ago, two weeks ago, I think it was about two and a half weeks ago, <coughs> and was talking with him about his salvation. And I had asked him, I said, has there ever been a time uh, where you've trusted Christ as your Savior? And he said, oh, yes, I've done that numerous times. And that concerns me a little bit. Because once we get saved, and once we've trusted Christ as our Savior, our Bible tells us that God keeps us saved. We are eternally secure. We've been given everlasting life. That means it lasts forever. Uh, the idea that in the book of Hebrews, in chapter number 7, the Bible says that Christ is the surety for us. The surety. He's the guarantor. He's the one that, even though we may sin again after we're saved, He's the one that steps forward and says, they put their faith in me, and I've already paid that for them. They're still saved. He is our advocate, and He is our mediator. And He's the one, the Bible says, who can lay a charge to God's elect? Certainly no one can, because the Lord Jesus Christ stands in between us and the great accuser. Whenever Satan comes and tries to bring our sins to get us to be judged by God the Father, Jesus says, that's already under the blood. I've paid for it. We are eternally secure because of those things. Paul is addressing some of the benefits that we receive when we get saved, when we trust Christ as our Savior. In Romans chapter number 5, Romans chapter 5, if you'll turn there with me, and uh, spend a little bit of time this week in uh, going through the book of Romans again. I love it. It's a rich, rich book uh, in the doctrine of grace. And uh, what a wonderful, wonderful truth uh, is found throughout it. And if you've never taken time to sit and read the book of Romans in one, one sitting, it, doesn't, it only takes a couple hours perhaps, even if you're a slow reader. Uh, if you read it carefully and thoughtfully, probably at most a couple hours. I think most people could do it in under an hour if they're an average reader and give uh, at least a modest thought to what they're reading. And I would encourage you to do this, to read it thoughtfully and don't rush through it. A wonderful doctrine that the Apostle Paul gives here regarding justification and um, what a wonderful, wonderful truth it is. But let's look in uh, chapter 5, if you will. Chapter number 5. We just dealt with in Romans chapter 4 in Sunday school that even in the Old Testament, Abraham specifically is the one that's used here, uh, was saved the same way that we are, by faith. He wasn't saved by the keeping of the law. He was saved by faith. In fact, the Bible goes out of his way, and, and Paul goes out of his way to express to us that uh, he was not saved by his works. He wasn't saved by the keeping of the law. He wasn't saved by the circumcision. He was saved by his faith. He believed God, and it was counted unto him for righteousness. And we find in verse number 5, he says, Therefore, after he's given this whole chapter of the illustration of Abraham being saved by faith and not by works, he says, Therefore, being justified by faith, we, 
You see that word there? After he spent all this chapter dealing with Abraham being justified by faith and not by works, he, he basically pulls it down to our level and says, and the same thing holds true for you. Being justified by faith, we, those of us that have been justified by faith, we have, no notice what he says here, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ, by whom also we have access by faith into this grace wherein we stand and rejoice in hope of the glory of God. And not only so, but we glory in tribulations also, knowing that tribulation worketh patience. Patience experience, and experience hope, and hope maketh not ashamed, because the love of God is spread abroad in our hearts by the Holy Ghost, which is given unto us. Let's pray together. Father, we're so thankful for Your Word. Lord, how rich it is and how it so draws our hearts to You. May we have a few moments today of the aid of Your Holy Spirit in enlightening and bringing this truth to mind and a full understanding. And Father, may our hearts rejoice in it. May our faith be strengthened by it. And Father, if there is someone in this room that has never put their faith and trust in what You have done for them on Calvary, Your promise that if we would, we would put our faith in You, that You would save us from our sin and that You would give us a home in heaven for eternity. Lord, if there's someone here that has never taken advantage of that, may today be the day that they would make that decision for You to put their faith, that they may be justified, that their sins may be covered by the blood of the Lord Jesus Christ, that He will give His righteousness to their account, and that they will gain a home in heaven for all of eternity, justified. I pray that you would bless the time and the teaching of your word. Draw our hearts to you, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. I love this word, justification. Somebody said years ago, if you wonder what justification means, you can kind of break it apart and say it's just as if I had never sinned. I shared in Sunday school a few weeks ago, I was listening to a fellow that was out uh, on the street and was uh, talking and with, with uh, folks and sharing the gospel message and uh, was allowing them to ask him questions. <clears throat> and they said, uh, they said uh, what is required to go to heaven? And the preacher that was up there, he said, perfection. Perfection is what is required to go to heaven. Now, I cringed at that at first. I saw some of you when I told this the first time. Some of you are like, oh, I can't believe he would say perfection. But the truth is, God's standard to come into heaven is perfection. There can be no sin there. In fact, the Bible says that he is light and in him is no darkness. And then as if to emphasize it, he says at all. There's no darkness. And so the, the fellow was really being truthful when he said perfection is God's requirement to get to heaven. And, and the person was baffled by that because he had just heard, they, they just heard this preacher say that you need to trust Christ as your Savior in order to go to heaven. And, and they said, well, I don't understand because you told me that there is nobody that's perfect. He said, that's true. Nobody's perfect. Now they're really puzzled. And they're looking at him like a calf looking at a new gate. And they said, but are there people in heaven right now? He said, oh, yes, they are. They said, how do you explain that? He said, easy, grace. She said, what do you mean? He said, when we put our faith in the Lord Jesus Christ, He takes His perfection, His righteousness, 
And He puts it on our account so that we appear perfect before God. And this, my friend, is is what Paul is speaking about as we get to chapter 5. He says, therefore, being justified, justified, having the record of the Lord Jesus Christ Himself, the very Son of God Himself, having His record placed on my account, I'll tell you, I never cease to be amazed at what God did to save us. In Romans chapter number 5, he tells us that in verse number 12, where, uh, that, that even while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. He, he didn't wait till we were perfect. He didn't wait till we were good. He didn't even wait till we loved Him to die for us. He loved us enough that while we were yet sinners, He died for us. What an amazing thought. And I'll tell you, as we, as we begin to think about what God had to do in order for you and I to be saved, it really ought to amaze us. It ought to, it ought to cause us to stand in awe of Him. If nothing else does, that certainly should be enough. It really ought to cause us to stand in deep reverence to Him. And it certainly ought to cause us to have the deepest of love that any human can ever express toward Him. Paul begins this by saying, therefore, being justified by faith, and he kind of brushes on past it. And it's not that Paul's not making a big deal about it. Paul certainly makes a big deal about justification. He does so in chapter 4 and and the chapters leading up to this as he speaks of what God did do for us. When he speaks in chapter 3 of of Romans, in verse number 10, it says, There is none righteous, no, not one. And then in verse 23, when he says, For all have sinned and come short of the glory of God. And then in chapter 6, when he says, For the wages of sin is death, but the gift of God is eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. And then he talks about in the book of Ephesians in chapter 2, For by grace are ye saved through faith, and that not of yourselves. It is the gift of God, not of works lest any man should boast. And over and over and over again, Paul makes a great deal of justification. And by the way, I think it would do us well if we would make a big deal about what God did for us when we got saved. It ought to be such a big deal that we go around everywhere we go telling other people about it. I'll tell you, we are, we are quick to share good news with people, aren't we? Something happens good in our life, what do we do? We pick up a phone. Well, nowadays we get on the computer, I guess. Or we text on the phone. And we call our family and we call our friends and we want to share a blessing with them. When was the last time we were so excited about what God did for us at Calvary that we picked up a phone or we typed a letter or we went to somebody's house and said, Boy, I was just thinking today about what God did for me when He saved me. Let me tell you, He justified me. He caused me, this old rotten sinner, to look like I had never sinned before. To put perfection on my account. What an amazing thought. And Paul deals with this. He says, therefore, being justified by, notice this, by what? By faith. It is not by our works. You don't earn salvation. You don't try to be worthy of salvation. You just simply put your faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. The Holy Spirit will take care of all the sanctifying work. That will happen once He comes to dwell inside of you. You don't worry about that. That's His job, not yours. Our job is to simply put our faith in the Lord Jesus Christ for salvation. To be justified by faith, Paul says. Notice what he says. There's, there's several things he gives here. <clears throat> there, there are 
that He gives us that are the benefit of being justified, trusting Christ as our Savior, if you will. First of all, He says, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. Now, don't mistake this with the peace of God. This is a different peace. The peace of God is something that uh, calms us when the trials of life come and, and there's, there's um, kind of a steadiness that God gives to us. Peace with God is this idea. Before we were saved, before we were justified, there was a holy God that demanded perfection and anything less than that had a penalty. The penalty was sin. Or the penalty was death and hell for our sin. And so we were you know, on the balance sheet of morality, if you will, on the balance sheet of holiness, we were at odds. We were fallen short, the Bible says, of the glory of God and could not reconcile because our sin brought imperfection. Our sin was detestable in the sight of a holy and a just God. There was no justification to be had. It was impossible. The gap was too great for a man to gap. God understood that and He saw that. There was no peace. We had no fellowship with God. We had no ability to commune with Him and to, and to have Him deal with our lives on a daily basis and to give us His blessing and, and, and His, His uh, uh, providential hand at work in our lives oftentimes. Where even though we don't deserve it, He deals with us out of His bountiful goodness. That was not there before we were justified. There was an unjustifiable account here between our sin and His justice that had to be, that had to be paid. It had to be met. And because of that, there was no peace. In fact, as we learned of this great gap, as we became aware of the fact that we could do nothing to reconcile ourselves to God, we became even more miserable, didn't we? The, the, the conviction that came to our hearts, the, 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 the sorrow, the, the dejection that came, the hopelessness that we felt, until we learned that He loved us enough that He sent His own Son to accomplish something that you and I could not do. He could reconcile us. He could pay the debt and He could bring us to a place where we, even on this side of heaven, have the ability to commune with God and to fellowship with God and to be intimately walking with Him on a daily basis. And, and, and when we get saved and we trust Christ as our Savior, the Bible tells us in 1 Corinthians that we become the temple of the Holy Ghost which is in us, which we have of God, and we are not our own. For we are bought with the price. Why? Because there was a great debt that had to be paid. And I couldn't pay it, and you couldn't pay it, but the Lord Jesus Christ could. And now I am reconciled on the balance sheet of holiness I am able to come into God's presence and fellowship with Him, not because of my goodness, but because of Christ's perfection. Paul tells them, Therefore, seeing we are justified by the faith, we have peace with God. He goes on to make sure we know it's not by us. He says, through our Lord Jesus Christ. I want you to look at a few passages. Hold your place and we're going to come back to Romans chapter 5. But I want us to look at a few other Scriptures that helps us understand this a little bit better, perhaps. Look in Colossians chapter number 2, if you will, with me. Colossians chapter number 2. Colossians chapter number 2. 
I'm going to begin in verse number 6. We're going to read down through several verses. As ye have therefore received Jesus Christ the Lord. Now, this is dealing with the idea of just taking Him at His word. Putting our faith and our trust in Him, all right? We use, the word that, Christ, or that Paul uses here is receive Jesus Christ. I think in the day we live using that word, sometimes uh, we, we get this idea that we're just acknowledging. But it's more than that. It's putting our faith in what He has said. Taking Him at His word. As you have therefore received Christ Jesus the Lord, notice this, so what? Walk ye in Him. So the walk, the works, comes after the salvation. All right, we'll deal with that a little bit later. Rooted and built up in Him, established in the faith, as ye have been taught, abounding therein with thanksgiving. Beware, lest any man spoil you through philosophy or vain deceit, after the tradition of men and after the rudiments of the world and not after Christ. So once we're saved, we've got to be careful. There's a lot of men that teach things, and they, they do it under the guise of religious teaching, and it is the responsibility of you and I to take those things that are taught by men, including this pastor, and to compare them with Scripture, and to make sure that what they are teaching is in line with this book. And if it's not, there's only one choice you have, and that is to trust this book over the teaching. Because it tells us here that we are not to be spoiled with philosophy and vain deceit after the traditions of men and after the rudiments of the world and not after Christ. <clears throat> For in Him, <clears throat> speaking of Christ, dwelleth all the fullness of the Godhead bodily, and ye are complete in Him, which is the head of all principality and power, in whom also ye are circumcised with the circumcision made without hands, in putting off the body of sins of the flesh, by the circumcision of Christ. In other words, our old flesh nature, cut away, destroyed. Now, understand in verse number 12, he says, Buried with him in baptism, wherein also ye are risen with him through the faith of, oper of the operation of God, who hath raised him from the dead. And you, being dead in your sins and the uncircumcision of your flesh, hath he quickened together with him, having forgiven you. Notice this phrase, and I'm so glad for this, and aren't you? Having forgiven you, what? All trespasses. Does that mean all of them that I have already committed? Yes. Does that mean all of them that I will commit this side of heaven? All. All means all. It means all of them. Past, present, future. I do not lose my salvation. Why? Because the perfection. I, I, I don't have the perfection to gain heaven anyway. It's the record of the Lord Jesus Christ that's been placed on my account. Whether it be for my past sin or my future sin, it's covered under the blood of the Lord Jesus Christ. Notice he says, verse number 14, blotting out the handwriting of ordinances that was against us, which was contrary to us, and took it out of the way, nailing it to the cross. I'm justified. I lay my head down at night, not because I'm perfect, but because I'm trusting in the One who is. And He has given to me His righteousness. Oh, what a Savior. The fact that we have peace with God. It wasn't made by us. It's not sustained by us. It was made by the Lord Jesus Christ. And it is sustained by the Lord Jesus Christ. Notice as we get to 1 Peter chapter number 2. And again, we're not talking about fellowship with God here. We're talking here about our, our salvation, our reconciliation with God. 1 Peter chapter number 2. <clears throat> 1 Peter chapter number 2, and let's look in verse number 24. 
In fact, let's back up uh, verse number 21. For even hereunto were ye called, because Christ also suffered for us, leaving us an example that we should follow his, ye should follow his steps. Who did no sin, neither was guile found in his mouth. Who, when he was reviled, reviled not again. When he suffered, he threatened not, but committed himself that judged righteously, who his own self bare our sins in his own body on the tree, that we, being dead to sin, should live unto righteousness, by whose stripes ye are healed. Oh, what a Savior! Because we've been justified, we have peace with God. He has reconciled our sinful account with the holy justice of God. What an amazing Savior we have. That through His death, His burial, His resurrection, we have peace with God. Look with me in Hebrews chapter number 4. What we could not do, He did. Hebrews chapter number 4 and verse number 16. Because He has reconciled us to God. Look what it says here. Verse number 16. Let us therefore come boldly unto the throne of grace that we may have mercy and find grace to help in time of need. Because I have been justified, I've trusted Christ as my Savior. Because He has reconciled me and caused me to be able to come into the very presence of God Himself, we have the ability, the Bible says here, to come boldly unto the throne of grace that we may find mercy Obtain mercy and find grace to help in time of need. You've been saved. You've trusted Christ as your Savior. Christ has done all the work. He has allowed us to obtain peace with God through His death, His burial, His resurrection. Now let's come back to Romans chapter 5 for a moment. Because we've been justified, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. That gives us access to God. I can come to Him anytime I need to. I can say, Lord, I need to talk with You for a little bit. And He's there. I can come right to Him and talk with Him just as much as I'm talking to You. Why? Because I'm justified. I've been saved. I've had my accounts settled with Him. Notice what else happens when we get justified in verse number 2. The Bible says uh, we have, first of all, peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. But in verse 2, He says, By whom also, speaking of the Lord, we have access to by faith into this grace wherein we stand and rejoice in hope of the glory of God. The second thing that we gain when we get justified is we gain access into this grace. The grace that the Bible talks about in Romans chapter number 5 where it said where sin abounded, grace did... In fact, let's just take a minute to look there. Look at the end of chapter number 5, if you will, with me. Let's start in verse number 19. For as one man's dis- by one man's disobedience many were made sinners, so that by the obedience of one shall many be made righteous. Moreover, the law entered that offense might abound, but where sin abounded, notice this phrase, grace did what? Much more abound. Can I tell you this? That when it talks about the fact that we have access into this grace, it's speaking of our confidence in Christ. I can lay my head down at night not wondering if there was enough grace to cover all my sin for the day. He saved me. He keeps me saved. Where my sin abounded, grace did what? It's much more abounded. When I put my faith and my trust in Him so that I could have His grace, it doesn't matter how much sin there is. There's enough grace to cover it all. 
In fact, the book of Hebrews we read this morning in chapter number 8, it says that He is able to save them to the uttermost. Oh, I'm so thankful of eternal security. And when he talks here about the access, that we have access in this grace, that he says, by whom we have access by faith into this grace, it gives us confidence. Because we have access into this grace, notice there are two things that come from this. Number one, wherein we stand. We are able to anchor our souls to this. That we have been given the grace of God because we've been justified by Him. We stand in His grace. Not my works, but His grace. I have full confidence to stand before someone and say, I'm saved and on my way to heaven. And they say, but aren't you a sinner? Sure, I'm a sinner. Then how do you know you're going to heaven? Because of God's grace. I have faith in it. I can stand in it. It gives me confidence. It allows me to have what the Bible refers to in just a few moments here is hope. It's an amazing thing to think of this thing, that because we have access to this grace that is through Christ Jesus, that it gives us the ability to stand therein. It gives us the ability to say, I know that I know that I know that I'm saved and on my way to heaven. I don't wonder, I don't doubt. I've done what the Lord said, I've put my faith and my trust in Him, and He has given me His promise that if I would do that, He would save me from my sin and take me to heaven when I die. If I, if I go to hell now, it's going to be His fault, not mine, because I'm trusting Him and not me. I've heard people say, well, I just don't see how a loving God can send anyone to hell. God never sends anyone to hell. In fact, it's not even His desire. He's not willing, the Bible says, that any should perish, but that all should come to repentance. That's His will. That's His heart. That's His desire. He doesn't want any person to perish. In fact, He came, the Bible says, to seek and to save that which was lost. He didn't make them lost. He came to deliver them from their lost condition. He came to save them from their undone condition. He came to give them peace with God. He came to bring justification between a sinful man and the justice of a holy God. The, holy, the Lord Jesus Christ came to do these things, and we have this wonderful thing that we can have access to, and that is this grace wherein we stand. You say, how do you know that you're saved? Because I have the grace of God given to me. What does that mean? That means He gave me something that I did not deserve. It was not my works. And I'll be the first to tell you that. And those of you that are sitting here today that are saved and know that you're saved would give the same testimony, wouldn't you? It wasn't by something I did. It was because of His grace that I stand here forgiven. It's by His grace that I stand here redeemed. It's by His grace that I stand here, what the Bible says here in chapter one, verse 1 of chapter 5, it's by His grace I stand here justified. Having my record reconciled to God. And I can stand in that. There's a lot of things that are uncertain in this life. There's a lot of things that People make promises to that they fail and break. There's a lot of times we do not trust people even though the word is given, even though the statement is made. But there's one thing that we can anchor our souls to that is an unshakable fact, and that is if we put our faith and trust in the Lord Jesus Christ, He will justify us. And because of that justification, we have access into that grace that allows us to stand in confidence before Him. Notice what it says here. 
by whom we have access by His faith into this grace wherein we stand. And I think this comes on the heels of the fact that we can stand in it and rejoice. Because we have access into this grace of God, we can stand and we can rejoice. It was not us that saved us, it was Christ who saved us. We put our faith in Him, but He's the one that did the saving. And if He's the one that saved us, He's the one that keeps us saved day by day. His mercies are renewed day by day. His grace is extended day by day. And where sin abounded, grace did much more abound. In fact, the book of James tells us that He giveth more grace. What an amazing thought. Grace, grace, God's grace. Grace that is greater than all my sin. I can stand in that. And I'll tell you this, I can rejoice in that. I mean, I'll tell you, that gives you a lot of things to be excited about. That causes us to walk through life, and when somebody asks us about our soul's condition or about our eternal destination, we can, we can tell them with gladness in our hearts. You ever get talking to somebody about what God did for you, and you just kind of get pretty excited about it? It kind of brings joy to your heart to tell them, well, let me tell you what God did for me. What is that? That's having access to the grace that allows us to stand in confidence and allows us to rejoice. Notice what it says here, that we rejoice. And Paul uses this word. We rejoice in hope of the glory of God. Now, we use the word hope in the day that we live, uh, oftentimes to mean, uh, I wish, or I'm hoping. You know, somebody says, well, uh, you know, are you going to... Are you going to go on vacation this summer? Boy, I sure hope so. And it's, it's wishful thinking. We know in our minds there's no way I have money to go on vacation this summer. But boy, I sure hope so. And it's a, it's a wishful thinking. But the usage of the word that Paul uses here and, and the word hope that is used here is a word that in, in the Old English, uh, when you look it up in the Webster's 1828 Dictionary, it talks about the fact that, yes, it could be a wishful hope. But more importantly, it says that when it's dealing with the hope that is found in the, that is based upon a promise of God, that it is not a wishful hope, but it is a confidence and a bringing of hopefulness to the thing that was already promised. In other words, they say it this way, confidence in a future event that is the highest degree of well-founded expectation that because it is founded on God's gracious promise. That's Webster's 28 Dictionary. It's not a wishful thinking. It's a confidence that God has promised it. It's not yet happened yet, so it's still hope. But it's not a wishful hope. It's a hope that it took place and then the promise is there, and I'm looking forward to it being done. That's the hope that he's speaking of here. You know what the opposite of that kind of hope is? Hopelessness. That's, that's what we had before we got saved, wasn't it? Well, I can't save myself, I'm a sinner. There's a just God that demands a payment for that sin. How? What, what am I going to do? There's a hopelessness that comes there until, follow me on this, until I get justified. Until I put my faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. And then when I get justified, I have a promise that one day I'm going to go and spend an eternity in heaven. It hasn't happened yet. But I have a hope in it, not that's a wishful thinking, but a hope that is based on a precious, gracious promise of God. 
For instance, let me say this. There are times that we get dejected and destitute about something. And, uh, for instance, um, my mother, the other day, she called me. This is a great illustration. I'll just use I hate to use personal illustration, but I'm going to use this one. My mother called me the other day. <clears throat> she had been with out of car. She didn't have money to buy a car. She didn't know what she was going to do. She was, she was really, and she's had some health problems. She's had strokes and some problems with high blood pressure and around with cancer. And, and she's not in the best of health. And, <clears throat> and I had already, had already been able to accomplish procuring a car for her. And I already knew it was there. And I was going to surprise her with it. I was going to drive it down last, last Sunday afternoon after church. I was going to get in the car and drive it down there to her and show up on Monday morning and pick her up for work in it. And I was so excited. I was going to get a big bow, you know, I was going to put it on there. But a week ago Thursday, I called her, as I do every day, and I was talking to her, and she was, she was sobbing on the other end of the line. I'd never heard her this way before. She said, Greg, I, there's no sense in you coming down, because I, I told her I was going to come down and help her find a car, which was no, no lie. I was going to help her find her car. I was going to help her find the one that I brought to her. And uh, she knew that I was going to help her find a car. And uh, she said, Greg, I don't want you to waste your time and money. She said, I, I don't have any. I've tried to find a way to even finance a car. I can't. I just don't have the means. And she said, I just don't know what I'm going to do. And I said, Mom, you need to just let the Lord do what He's going to do and go to sleep tonight, get you a good night's rest, and it'll be okay. And I told her that. I said, just, it'll be okay. I still didn't tell her yet that I had a car. I hung up the phone, and about 15, 20 minutes later, my sister in Indiana texted me. She said, Greg, I'm worried about Mom. She's going to end up having another stroke. She's just so worried. I've never seen her this worried about things before. She said, you probably need to think about telling her. And I'd already heard her, and I was already worried about her and her health. And so I, I picked up the phone last Thursday night a week ago, and I called her back. And she's crying. And she said, what, what are you calling me again for? I said, Mom, I just got off the phone with, with Betsy, and I, 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 tried to, I tried to calm you down and get you to rest easy, and you wouldn't do it. I said, I'm worried that you're going to have a stroke. She's like, well, Greg, there's nothing you can do about it. I said, yeah, there is. I said, I already bought you a car, and I'll be down there Sunday with it. She said, what? And immediately... The burden rolled away. I called her Friday morning. She said, Greg, I slept so well last night. She didn't even have the car yet. But she had the promise of the car. And to say that she had hope for the next few days where there had been hopelessness before. And for the next several days, she went around telling everybody, my son bought me a car. It's going to be here Monday. I can't wait. It's coming. It's going to be here. Can I tell you, that wasn't wishful thinking. That was a hope that was based on a promise. And while that's not a perfect example, because that's a promise made by a man that could be broken, can I tell you this, that when God makes that promise to us, we put our hope in it. Those of us who were hopeless, we hope in it, not expecting that it might happen, but convinced that it's going to happen. And we now have hope. Those who were without hope say, Oh, I can endure because I know the glory that's to come. I can live in this world and I can survive in this world and I can work and labor and even suffer tribulation in this world because I have a hope.
that one day I'm going to go to heaven. And that which is set before me, that which God has promised to me, far outweighs anything I may have to endure in this life. Can I tell you, when I got justified, I got a hope that not only do I stand in, but I rejoice in. Oh, what a wonderful thing. Notice what he says here in verse number 3. Not only so, but we glory in what? There's four things he's going to give us here, and i got four minutes. How many of you believe in miracles? There's four things he gives you. I'll be brief. Somebody called this four steps to increasing our hope. Not the wishful hope, but increasing the faith and the confidence and the hope we have. Four steps. Number one, tribulation worketh patience. Tribulation worketh patience. Look with me in James chapter 1. Hold your place here. We're going to come right back to it. Notice notice what James says about this. He doesn't call it tribulations. He calls it the trying of our faith. In James chapter 1, in verse number 4, he says this, Knowing this, this is something that is Christianity 101. It's something that is understood by those that are saved. Knowing this, that the trying of your faith worketh patience. But let patience, notice this, have her what? Perfect work. That, that word perfect, oftentimes in Scripture, is not meant to mean sinless, but to the maturing effect. Let patience have her perfect work, that ye may be perfect, not again sinless here, but that you may be grown, matured spiritually. And you say, is that within the context? Absolutely, because the next three or four words here say, and entire, wanting nothing. You're complete as a Christian. You've grown. You've matured. And you're not lacking in these things. This is what the trying of our faith brings about. So, when we get justified, Paul kind of does what he often does here. He doesn't debate whether or not tribulation is going to come. He already assumes we know that. But he says when it comes, you can rejoice in it. In fact, he says this, we glory in it. Why? Because the tribulation worketh patience, maturity in the Christian life, growth in the Christian life. What does that mean for us? That means we become more like Christ through our tribulations. That's what we glory in. Not our own works, not our own patience, not our own faith, but that we've become more like Christ. My glory is Him. My glory is to be as much like Him as I possibly can. Why? Because He deserves all the glory. I don't want what Greg wants. I want what Christ wants. And Paul says, tribulation worketh that in us. Notice he says in verse uh, verse 3, he says, And not only so, but we glory in tribulations also, knowing that tribulation worketh patience. Secondly, patience worketh experience. Notice he says this, and patience experience. It was said of the early apostles, in fact, in the early church, a lot of times uh, people would say this about the apostles, that the apostles were those that were still standing when others had fallen. What were they saying of the apostles? They were patient in tribulation. 
they were still standing when the circumstances of life, when the trials of life, when the persecutions, they were still standing when others fell. Can I tell you, only a Christian that has grown in the depths of God's grace, having been justified by the Lord Jesus Christ, can understand and know that through the trying of tribulations, it will bring about that maturing and the growing in the patience of our life that will allow us to remain steadfast and unmovable and always abounding in the work of the Lord. Can I tell you this? It is a sanctifying work that the Holy Spirit does in us, but it is something that was wrought the day that we were justified in our lives. We began to have this time of growing our lives through tribulation and becoming more Christ-like. And because we're more Christ-like, we now can endure the things, the hardships of this life. We can endure the persecutions. We can endure the circumstances. We can endure the trials and still be faithful to God through them. I was on the phone yesterday with a fellow who's going through some things that I'll be real frank with you. No living human should ever have to go through. He said, I'm at the point in my life where if I were to die, not one person's life would be affected by it. This is the despair, the place that he was at. When those trials come, when we're brought so low that we look at the fact that if I were to die, it would not even affect anyone. To be faithful in those moments. Patience worketh experience. To still be standing when others have fallen. And I spent some time weeping with him on the phone. And encouraging him to just be faithful through it. Just be faithful. Experience, patience worketh experience. Second, or thirdly, Experience worketh hope. Experience worketh hope. Hebrews chapter number 12. I'll just, if you're going to take time to turn there, that's fine. We'll just quote it. Verse number 1. Wherefore, we're seeing we also are compassed about with so great a cloud of witnesses. Let us lay aside every weight and the sin which does so easily beset us, and let us run with patience the race that is set before us. Looking for that, or looking unto Jesus, the author and finisher of our faith, who for the joy that was set before Him endured the cross, despising the shame. How am I going to run that race with patience? Looking unto Jesus. He's the author and the finisher of my faith. And this experience that Patience brings about this, this steadfastness, this keeping the hand to the plow when there's no reason to. When we are at the depths of despair and wonder, Lord, is there even any reason for me to be here? And Paul's the one writing these things, and I will tell you this, there was a point in Paul's life, and we've looked at it in Scripture before, where Paul said, it'd be better for me to depart. It's more needful for you that I stay. What was he saying? He's saying it's it's tough. There are trials. There's frustration. And Paul certainly could relate to those things. 
Paul certainly could relate to where there were times that he felt no one cared for him. But he continued on. He remained faithful. He remained faithful and died a martyr's death, saying, I have finished my course. I have kept the faith. I've run my race. I've done what I was supposed to do. But Paul, were you not dejected? Did you not go through trials and tribulations and things that brought men to the depths of despair? Yes, I did. I was in perils in the deep. I was beaten. I was stoned. I was imprisoned. I was tortured. Well, Paul, how did you remain faithful? I was justified. And that justification allowed me to have access to the grace that I was able to stand in and rejoice. It allowed me to glory in tribulation, knowing that the tribulation was working my patience and perfecting me and causing me to grow, become more like Christ. And that patience allowed me to, 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 to have the experience going through these things with the grace of God when everything else seemed to be forlorn. After I had been beaten, cast into the stocks in the inner prison, I could do nothing else than sing hymns and praise to God. Why, Paul? Why would you do such a thing? Because I've been justified. been justified. Because God has saved me from my sin, there are things that I have gained. I have gained peace with God. I have gained access into His grace. And I have had my hope strengthened. And notice he says this, and patience experience and experience hope. And hope maketh not ashamed. Paul's the one who said, But I am not ashamed, for I am not ashamed of the gospel of Christ. You wonder where boldness in the Christian life comes from. It's because we have access to the grace that God's given to us. It's taken some tribulation. It's taken some growing of our patience. It's taken some experience. But it's finally arrived. We've gained the hope, not wishful thinking, but the confidence in the promises of God that maketh not ashamed. And now I can boldly go and do the work that God has called me to do, standing firm in the justification that the Lord Jesus Christ did in my life and all that that brings with it. My friend, today I will tell you this, that if you've trusted Christ as your Savior, you are eternally secure. And you gain all of these things that so often we don't know we have. And oftentimes we fret and we worry along the way and we give up and our faith is shaken and we grow weak. Can I tell you this? If you've been justified by the Lord Jesus Christ, you gain all of these things. Confidence. The ability to rejoice in tribulation, knowing that our tribulation worketh patience. Patience, experience, and experience hope, and hope maketh not ashamed.
because the love of Christ is shed abroad in our hearts. Oh, what a great Savior we have. Let's stand together, shall we, with heads bowed. Father, we are thankful and from time to time need to be reminded not only of the great gift of being pardoned for our sin and given forgiveness,